If you have your Bibles, John chapter 7. I wrote it, read it just a few moments ago. John chapter 7, verse 53. And we're going to walk through the first 11 verses of chapter 8 together. And the theme of this morning's passage is costly grace. Costly grace. Um, so, kind of mentioned a moment ago, just a poll. Anybody here at some point look back at your life and you can spot at least one, whether it's regret, failure, mistake. And uh, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole room raised their hands. And so, um, so we, we understand that we are imperfect people. We understand that we, uh, as the Bible teaches us, uh, the Bible says that, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Uh, we, we understand that. And, and as I get to know people, I also find, and it's true of myself, perhaps true of you too, like uh, that you possibly are your own worst critic. All right, anybody else like that? Like you, like you can have a string of like a uh, hundred things and 99 things can go right. But if that one thing, if you messed up in that one area or did that one thing wrong, those 99 things were great that, that went well, but it's almost like all you can think about is what, what didn't work or what failed or how we missed it or, or how, we, how we messed up. And, and it's possible there's a very healthy side of that, which is, okay, that was a, that was a failure, that was a mistake, I'm going to learn from it, gain wisdom, uh, you know, kind of build some things into my life that's going to help to guard against maybe repeating that that, that struggle or that offense, like there's a healthy side of that. But then there's also on the other side, there's a very unhealthy side of that, which is you basically camp out in your failure. You, you get a pillow, you get a blanket and you live in the fact that you messed up and you failed. And, and what, what can happen is you can allow that failure to, you can, you kind of like take that failure as your identity. When, when, when Christ has communicated who you are in him, but it's easy to kind of camp out in that, that failure and to be marked by that and even uh, paralyzed by that in some way. And so I believe with all of my heart, like today's text is going to be a major word of encouragement for, for all of us, but I would say specifically for those folks who probably are in the room right now and there is an emotional, spiritual war zone. Like if you could see into your heart, you would see a war zone because you're struggling with some past something and, and it has got you and, it, and, it's, and it's holding you back. And so God through this word is gonna, I believe, show the pathway forward in victory that is only made possible through him and through his costly grace. So there is a main idea of this passage. It is that only Jesus has the authority, the power, and the ability to forgive our sin and to give salvation. This is, this is the message of the Bible. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only way for sinful man to experience salvation through repentance and faith in Him and Him alone. And so before we jump right in, just a bit of, just to get our bearings in the text, John chapter seven is all about a feast. And if you have headings in your Bible, it probably says feast of tabernacles. It might say feast of booths. It might say feast of shelters. Uh, this was one of the three major 
pilgrimage Jewish feast where uh, Jewish pilgrims from all over Jerusalem and, and Palestine, the whole area, they would go into Jerusalem. And, and if you were a Jewish male and you lived within a certain mileage of Jerusalem, it was law. Like you had to go. Uh, but everybody wanted to go. And it said that the Feast of Booths was the most joyous of all the feasts. And so uh, this feast has just taken place. It's, an, it's a week-long camp out, basically. And, and so the time of the feast has closed out. And as we jump in, we're going to see it's time for folks to go home. And so in John chapter 7, verse 53, it's the last verse of chapter 7. The Bible says that they each went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And I think this is significant because even in this, this nugget of truth, we see the incredible humility of Jesus Christ, the creator of all things. Most people who don't live in Jerusalem, they're packing up. It's time to go to their homes. They have an address. They, they live perhaps nearby or in a town. It's a place they call home. And yet here is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and even, uh, even from his incarnation, the, the birth of Christ and Bethlehem, he's in, he, he, he's, 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 he's in a borrowed feeding trough. Like they, the, the creator of the world is wrapped in swaddling clothes and he's laying in a borrowed feeding, cloth, feeding trough. And then as you observe the, the, the ministry of Jesus, you, you see that he'll say the foxes have holes and the birds uh, of the air have nests, but the son of God has nowhere to lay his head. We see six months from this passage that we're reading about at the Feast of Tabernacles. In six months, there's going to be another feast and it's going to be called the Passover feast. And in just six months, Christ will culminate. His earthly ministry will culminate by being crucified on a Roman cross as the true and once and for all Passover lamb. And after his crucifixion, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they take his body off of that cross and they place him in a borrowed tomb. So we see this, the humility of Christ through, through his mission. Why? Because he, he didn't, he, he came for a mission. The Bible says very clearly he came to seek and to save the lost. And I would just say for all of us as the church, as believers in the Lord Jesus, that we would never lose sight of the mission of Jesus and that his mission is our mission to seek and save the law. So God help us to always keep that in front of us. So he's on a mission. And in verse two, the Bible says early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all of the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. I, I love verse two. It communicates so much because what we see is the priority of the day was that Jesus would return to that temple mount where he had been on multiple occasions through the week that he, he went home and evidently not everybody went home. Some stuck around, but for a lot of folks, the priority was to get to the temple so that they could hear the word of the Lord. Like that was their priority. Jesus early in the morning is there to invest himself, to invest his truth into their hearts and into their lives. And the same is true for them. They could have been doing many things that morning. I'm sure there was 
all kinds of stuff on the to-do list. But thing number one or to-do number one was I need to go to the temple because I need to hear the voice of Jesus. I need to hear his voice. And so they've gathered. And I would just say this is an encouragement to all of us. I would never, ever in a million years communicate a legalism of like you gotta, if you don't, if you don't spend time in the morning with God's word, then, then you've, you've missed it. I, I realize some people's best is at different part of the days, a uh, different part of the day, but I see a really practical application of God before we get this day going. I need to quiet my spirit, quiet my heart, and I need to open your word and I need to hear your voice And so they were desperate for that voice. And all through seven, John chapter seven, we see all through the feast, there's been all kinds of people, all kinds of different people in the crowd. You got the people in the crowd who love Jesus. These would be the ones I would call the thirsty in the text, because just a little few verses earlier, Jesus would cry out to everyone there. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words, that if anyone is thirsting for true soul satisfaction, And desire salvation, come to me and drink, speaking of believing and placing your faith in him. And so this invitation is for every thirsty soul. So no doubt there are the thirsty. They are there. There's no doubt that there's probably seekers in the in the in the midst. Like these are people who uh, are, are investigating. They're weighing out what Christ is saying and they're observing what they're seeing. And so they're processing All that's going on. You got the the lover of Jesus. You have the seeker. You have probably those in the crowd. And I'm not judging, but there's probably out of all those multitudes, there's probably indifferent people there. Um, I'm sure for a lot of those people going to the feast, uh, the tabernacle, feast tabernacle, like this is just what they did. Every year they go and they celebrate this feast. And so there's probably some folks there. Honestly, they're there because this is just what they've always done. This is what they do. And so they go. So there's folks who honestly could care, maybe care less about the fact that Jesus is there. And so there's an indifference. But then there's also those who hate Jesus. That there is a a group of religious leaders, very religious people, that behind closed doors, they are plotting to kill Jesus. And it all started perhaps about a year earlier. We don't know which feast, but we know there was another feast where Jesus went and healed a paralyzed man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. The religious leaders saw that they lost their minds over that. And they also, the Bible tells us in John five that, 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 that not only did he heal on the Sabbath, but he made himself equal with God because he is God. But from that moment, that was a turning point. And so you got these religious leaders who have a mission and that mission is to kill Jesus. So it's early in the morning. It's the day after the feast. The hungry and thirsty have come to have Bible study with Jesus. And just like we may experience in real life, if you got a holy moment going on, it's not going to take long before the enemy will do whatever he can to try to disrupt what God is doing. And so there he is. He's teaching. He has the role of a teacher. He's sitting there listening. And it's as abrupt as, as abrupt as we're going to read the Pharisees barge in. The Bible says this in verse three, it says the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, 
This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Oh, we're going to see this whole, this whole bringing this adulterous woman and interrupting the study and putting her right in the middle. I mean, this was a hundred percent premeditated. Like they, they had calculated their moves and what they're going to do. And we're going to see that evidenced as we walk through this. But, but what we observe, we're going to, two observations in the text is one is the depth of sin. We're going to see a great depth of sin. All of us are probably experienced, seen, taken part in, aware of just the depth of brokenness that we see. And here are some bloodthirsty Pharisee leaders. I, I think of Proverbs 1 verse 16. The Bible says this, their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. So the whole purpose of this whole thing is just to trap Jesus. Jesus is a distraction. Jesus is a disruption. Jesus is a nuisance. Jesus is a problem. We got to get rid of him. The whole thing was a, a trap. And so the Pharisees and scribes, scribes were like, uh, almost like the lawyers. They, they would help um, uh, kind of reaffirm, interpret law. And so, so, so they're all there to kind of see, okay, we got Jesus. What, what's going to happen? And, and, and what we do know is this, the Old Testament law, which is given to us in the Old Testament, God gave the Old Testament law through his servant Moses. That if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, the seventh commandment is that you shall not commit adultery. That in the Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, the law says this, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. In Jewish culture, if, there's, if they're kind of categorizing sin, they would, they would perhaps say murder is number one on the list, which they're trying to forsake their own law to try to get their hands on Jesus and, and to frame him. But murder, idolatry, and then adultery. Adultery, they, they, they understand that adultery can, can rip apart a family. They understand that uh, if, if, you, if, if the family unit is, is, is torn apart, that this has an effect on society. And so, so the law is very clear in speaking against adultery. And not only that, Jesus, when he comes in the New Testament, that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he even expounds on this, this act of adultery, not leaving it just to the physical act, but also uh, an act of the mind. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. The Bible says this, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's not just speaking of the physical act. He's speaking to the act of the will and act to the heart. He expounds on this, the sin. So we see the depth of sin, but let's, let's be careful here because here are the Pharisees and they're looking at the spec when they have a log, a two by four in their eye, because they obviously aren't interested in, in going about due process here. Why the law said, bring the man too. 
Well, where's the man? They're not worried about the man. They're worried about one thing, trap Jesus. And so they bring this woman. They're not interested in him. Jesus is the judge over all, but he does not hold on his earthly ministry the role of judge. They had a system. Uh, they could have easily gone through that system if they wanted to go about things the way that it was set up. But no, they, they, they are bringing her in, throwing her before the Lord and saying, what are you going to do? Uh, Historian scholars say that that for someone to bring as a witness someone who's committed adultery, they would say that it would be gathering the evidence would be almost impossible because you would have the need a multiple cast of witnesses to witness to the fact that adultery has taken place and that the charges were substantiated. And, and they said this would almost be impossible if it were not a setup. So they are, the whole thing is like, they're just plotting this plan out to trap Jesus, to trap him. And the words say, what do you say? It, 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 it carries with it like an emphatic command of, so what are you going to say about this? And they are set that they've got him trapped. Because if he says yes, stone her. Then, then what does that do of his, of his reputation of be the friend of sinners? How would, how, would, how would a sinner approach Jesus knowing that they have fallen morally or in some way? And like, how, how can I even do that? And so... So if he says, yes, Stoney, he's going to lose those that he has come to rescue. But then also if he says no, and he opposes the Mosaic law, then if he opposes the law, then they're going to discredit him as being the Messiah. And so they're like, they've got him pinned no matter what. And they're leaning in and all of this creates a, a, an important question that we all need to, I think, be equipped with and to, to be able to, to navigate because here's the thing. God is holy. He is holy. He is altogether separate, altogether different. He is holy. I love what Isaiah 6 paints the picture of the throne room and angels around and there's all shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so God is holy. But we also know that his law is holy and his law is good and his law is right. Paul writes this in Romans chapter seven, verse 12. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But Paul also communicates in Romans three, chapter 20, that the role of the law is to show us that we're sinners in need of a savior. This is what the law does. It's like a it's like a it's like a mirror that. We look and we see and we see what's imperfect. And so the God is holy, the, the, the law is holy, and God is just. That means he doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. Like he doesn't just like, oh, that's okay, no big deal, and sweep it on the rug and then just kind of leave it there. No, he's just, which means he must punish wrongdoing. He has to do it. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, for the Lord is a God of justice. And so how does God's holiness and God's justice and the holiness of the law, how does that work with this picture of grace and forgiveness that all of us desperately 
need in our lives. How does that work? And the answer is in front of us in the text. And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer because he came and it will be in about six months from this feast. There's going to be another feast I told you about, the Passover feast. In about six months, he will be betrayed. He will go through kangaroo court after kangaroo court. He will be sentenced to crucifixion. And on that cross, what Jesus absorbs for those who repent and believe in him, he soaks up in his body all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the, the penalty that is due, his wrath, all of God's wrath that's poured out on sin. Jesus absorbs that on the cross. The Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might have the righteousness of God. Jesus soaks up the wrath of God of all of those who repent and believe. Incredible, incredible. This is, this is how we see that the justice of God is satisfied. And so let's see, we see the depth of sin. We see it with adultery. We see it in the sin of the Pharisees. If we look closely, we see sin in our hearts and in our lives. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see the depth of sin, but against the backdrop, let's see the grace and truth of Jesus. And this is good news for a weary heart. The grace and truth of Jesus. Verse 6 says this, Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. This is the only place in scripture we see Jesus wrote. And my father and I were talking last night. I have no idea. It's pure speculation what he wrote. We don't know. But what he wrote was visible. Some people believe what he wrote is going to be the very next verse that we look at in verse 7. Some people believe it was scripture. Some believe he began to name specific sins in the, the, the crowd of those who were preparing to stone the adulterous woman. We, we don't know. We don't know, but we, we do know that they kept pressing, verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Those who were bringing the charge, they would be the ones with the stone. They would be on the front line. They would be ready to carry out judgment. But Jesus, in his divine wisdom and his divine power and his divine character, I, I love the wisdom of Jesus, and, and which, by the way, he, he offers us. If, if you ask in need of wisdom, he, he's faithful to give it. James teaches us his wisdom is saturated in just this phrase. Why? Because in his answer, which is a question, he upholds the law. He didn't excuse the sin of adultery. He didn't excuse, but what he did was he leveraged his holy and righteous law to reveal the sin of the Pharisee leaders. Like that, and that's what the law does. The law shows us our need for a savior because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus is saying, if, you, if you're without sin, 
Throw the first stone. And by the way, the language there of him who is without sin, it's speaking to the specific sin of adultery. And so whether it is they've committed the physical act or whether they're conscious, some translations say conscious kicks in. It's the, that, that broader definition of being an adulterer at heart. But they obviously under conviction and anger, they, they leave. They leave. Verse 8 says, once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I love what Wiersbe says. Warren Wiersbe says, they came to put Jesus to shame and yet they walked away shameful. That they were in the presence of holiness. And yet they in that moment understand and see their own sin. They were bloodthirsty. They were not interested in this woman. They were not interested in the forgiveness that will come. They just wanted to trap Jesus. That was the whole plan. And yet they continue to turn their heart against the Lord. And, and I'll be honest, as I read the Bible and more and more reading the Gospels, my heart is one of the saddest, I think one of the saddest illustrations in all of the Bible is you have these super religious people who literally are in the presence of God in the flesh, the Messiah, the one they've all been longing and waiting for, the only one who can rescue them and forgive them and give them life to the full. And yet their heart was so hard against Jesus. And they continue to reject. And that heart, that heart just keeps hardening, hardening towards the Lord. But I love this lasting picture, which is where we're wrapping up. But the fact that they all walked away and Jesus is alone with the woman standing in front of him. And I want us to be reminded of this. Jesus is the only one without sin. He's the only one who has the ability, the power, the authority, and the right to stone this woman. But do not miss this. Jesus did not throw a single stone. He didn't throw a single. So he's the only one that could and he didn't. Because I just wonder how many people in the room this morning. There is something from your past. There is something you're wrestling with right now. And yet you continue to pick up stones figuratively. And you continue to throw them at yourself. And yet here is the holy one. The only one who has the power to condemn. And yet he doesn't throw a single stone at her. The consequences are real. Consequences to unwise and simple choices. Those consequences are real. But God's forgiveness is real. And it's powerful. And so in verse 10, Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one, has no one condemned you? And I just want to tell you what we're about to read was worth the trip to church this morning. <laughs> I mean, just to hear what we are about to hear Jesus say is such a powerful truth. Look at what the Bible says in verse 11. She said, no one, Lord. 
And he said this, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. No, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That, 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 that withholding of condemnation, that holding back from pouring out his wrath on her sin, that he is able to forgive her because of what he is going to do in about six months. Because the guilt and the shame and the wrath that she deserves for the sin that we all deserve for our sin against a holy God, he is going to absorb that and take that on on our behalf. He's going to become sin. The one who knew no sin becomes sin so that we could be set free, so that we could be granted gift righteousness. This is such a powerful, powerful picture that that you're not condemned speaks of the repentance and faith of this adulterous woman believing in Jesus. And then he says, go and sin no more. And here's what I love about the story. Here's what I love about this verse. Jesus did not flip those, that, that verse. In other words, he did not say this adulterous woman, go and get your life right. Go and get cleaned up. Go and get your heart in order, get your life in order. And once you get all that in order, then come back and see me. No, Jesus in his grace meets her where she is, cleanses her of her sin, her condemnation and sets her free. I love that picture. I believe this is one of the greatest whispers of the enemy for someone not living in a relationship with Jesus is there is this like, oh, no, I need to do better. Oh, I need to fix that. Oh, I need to do that. And so, so in your mind, you think either you're unworthy to come to Jesus or, or you just need to get some stuff right before you come to Jesus. And so, and so you kind of attempt this, this man-made, this man-strengthened effort that, that, that only ends in loss. Like you can't fix yourself. You can't do it. You can't do it. And so I think there are so many people that are trying to get themselves together before they come to Jesus. When the reality is, is Jesus meets us where we are. And he rescued her. He saved her. He forgave her. And because of that life-giving relationship with Jesus, as he told those who were thirsty just a few verses before... Out of your heart will come rivers of living water. I say this because the Holy Spirit, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to strengthen you to live a life for my glory and for my mission. And she goes off. And I love this picture of incredible, amazing grace. It is important for us to know Jesus is not soft on sin. He is not soft on sin. That he doesn't just say, oh, let's pretend like that never happened. Okay, good. No, he, he says that on that cross, he will take it all. He will receive it all so that we can be forgiven and set free. She sinned against him. This is a fact, but he's going to take that sin upon himself. So as we look at this text, there is so much here. So much here that is so encouraging but I want to make just a couple of points of application as we wrap up. And the first is this. It's a message to the believers in the room. Um, a believer would be someone who has repented of their sin. 
and place their faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, surrendering their hearts to the Lordship of Jesus. To the believer in the room, if that's you, and if you are, you would be one of those that says, you know what, I, there's this mistake, there is this choice, there is this thing that happened, and, and just I just can't, I can't shake it. Here is some encouraging words, is that in Christ, three words, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, if I'm, whether it's a counseling situation or just kind of walking through brokenness, uh, oftentimes that's after the gospel, that's the starting point because it is this encouragement and this reminder that in Christ, you're not condemned. You're not condemned. The enemy condemns. The Holy Spirit convicts. One leads to feeling paralyzed and powerless. And one leads to life and life to the full. And so may we be encouraged that in Christ, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are, you are believer, forgiven. And I love, I believe it was Chip Ingram who said this, but he says, our failure is never final with God. And that is so good because failure can ring so loud in our ears. And if we don't believe it, just talk, ask the woman at the well in John chapter four. Ask her if failure is ever final. Ask Nicodemus, the great religious leader, if failure is ever final. Ask the adulterous woman if we could have a conversation with her. If we could just sit knee to knee and just say, tell me about what happened. She would say failure is never final. If we had a chance to talk to Peter after he denied Christ three times and he was restored on that shoreline at the Sea of Galilee, he would be the first to say failure is never final. Ask anybody who has discovered the incredible freedom that is found in the truth of God's word then we will know that failure is never final. And so be encouraged. And a second is that as a believer, we would never take this free gift of God's grace for granted. And that we will understand as a fellow by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that he wrote a book called Cost of Discipleship. And he warned his listeners against what he would call cheap grace. He says this about cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross and grace without Jesus. In other words, he's warning that it's just all about the benefit when we understand that to live and experience in God's grace that there is a surrender of our lives to Him. And I love what Paul says in Romans 6, 1 and 2. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, as a believer, when we surrender our lives to King Jesus and He rescues us from our sin, 
He cuts the power cord of sin in our life. But there are times where we get in the flesh and get off track and take our focus off of Jesus. We try to take that power cord and we try to stick it back in. When the encouragement is, is that because of being rescued by God's grace, grace is also the strength to obey. It's also that strength to obey the Lord and what he calls us to. And so be encouraged in Christ, believer, you are forgiven. Believer in Christ, may we never treat or handle or even speak of the grace of God in a flippant, cheap way. And may we also be encouraged of the rescue mission that happens right before our eyes. A lot of times you can read a, a, a passage of scripture and be like, okay, so where am I in that crowd? Because there were, there were different people there, and we, we talked about them earlier, but there were obviously there were, there were some onlookers there. They were there that were simply observing what's going on. They were seeing this act of forgiveness and grace, but yet they themselves didn't give themselves to Christ in that moment. They're just watching, they're observing. And then you had the religious leaders who had just absolutely resolved in their heart and mind that their one mission was to trap Jesus and to get rid of him. And yet they turned and walked away and weren't even interested in the forgiveness that he would give to this woman in need. But then there's the woman in the story who we can absolutely relate to that was her sin ever present in front of her. And yet God through that responds to her, her faith, her repentance and saying, I, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Be free. Be free. And so it could be that you're here today and you're like, you know what? I do not have a relationship with Jesus. I know I don't. I know I don't. And, and the invitation that we hear all through scripture is this invitation of a God who loved the world, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And He meets us where we are. And what a powerful picture of this rescue of Jesus, rescuing this woman caught in adultery. And to which that truth applies today is that if you're here living apart from Him, that He has died on the cross to absorb the wrath justice of God against our sin and extends grace and forgiveness to those who repent and believe. So if you're here today and need to begin a relationship with Jesus, it is the single most important decision you will ever, ever make. And so let's pray together and just be open to however the Lord will want to guide our hearts in this time. God, we love you and we thank you for this passage. And God, I I thank you, God, for your amazing grace. And God, that though we experience your grace as a gift, the reality is, is that it came at a high price. A price so high, we could never, we couldn't take out a loan big enough. We couldn't make enough. We couldn't do enough to pay that debt, but yet you took it and paid it for us. And in response to our believing in you, you gift us your righteousness. God, thank you 
for your incredible, amazing grace. For the believer who is stoning themselves, God, you didn't throw a stone. May they rest in your grace and rest in your forgiveness and rest in your love and rest in your care. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, go and live a life that is powered by the Spirit, bringing honor and glory to you. And Father, may we also be intentional with how we use this word grace. That it is not cheap, but there is a cost. God, we have been, your word says we've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in our body. We can't do that on our own, only through your grace and your power. And so God, help us, God, to to live amazed by your grace, but also to be powered by your grace, to live a life that honors you and glorifies you. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here who does not have a personal relationship with you, that today would be the day of acknowledging their sin. It's ever before us. That we would turn from ourself and our sin and turn to you and surrender to you as Lord and Savior. So God, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for this example of amazing grace. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you to stand with me and uh, we're going to have a song of response. And so if you're here and you're like, I need to begin a relationship with Jesus, I invite you to please come. We would love to walk alongside you, pray with you, encourage you. If you're here and you simply need to come to the altar and pray, feel that that comfort to come and pray. If you want to kneel there at your seat, however you feel led, but let's give God our hearts in this time and just pray that he would reveal and show us what he desires from us in our lives.